Welcome to the Portion Podcast, a weekly discussion of the Torah portion of the week. I am your host, Aaron Roller, here with my co-host, Rabbi Jonathan Bienenfeld. Pleasure to be here with you. Chodesh Tov. Chodesh Tov to you, my good man. We are recording on the first day of the month of Adar. It says, uh, as soon as we're we... actually recording on the last day of the month of Shvat. I mean, I hate to be a killjoy. It's still Rosh Chodesh, though. Yeah, sure, sure. All right, you know, it's uh... Yeah, why why is that? Why do we consider the last day of the month to be Rosh Chodesh? Well, we didn't know exactly when Rosh Chodesh would be, right? And the outlying areas beyond Israel where news couldn't travel and you where, wouldn't be where able we to hear. are. Where we are, for instance, you you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know if if today would end up being the thirtieth day of the preceding month or if it would be the first day of the upcoming month. So you would celebrate it as Rosh Chodesh uh, until you, you got some clarity. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is strange, as illustrated by the exchange we just had, where you're like, oh, happy new month, and it's not really the new month yet. Right, correct. On our fixed calendar. But anyway. Not, not unlike when, I mean, I guess we're just used to it, but not unlike when on the second day of Pesach, we're saying, hey, good Yontif. What do you mean by that? I mean, is it? I thought yesterday was Yontif. You know, similar sort of thing. I, I guess. Um, well, maybe, maybe, does that explain why I, I'm not feeling happier already? Is because it's not really Adar yet? I think it's. I think. I think you just need to smile more. You just need to smile more, even if even if you don't fake it till you make it. Can't can't our radio audience hear me smiling over the, over the podcast waves? I I, I don't know. Maybe we could put that up as a as like a quiz or something. A poll. A poll. Maybe we'll just post a picture of me smiling. Uh, anyway, the um. But anyway, uh, uh, perm is coming. It's exciting and very uh, exciting. I had and my, beyond Purim coming, beyond you know, Purim coming, Adar Marbin Besimcha from the moment that that Adar hit. So not only as a ramp up to to Purim, but the, but just the month generally, itself. yeah, right. Just, as soon as the sun sets ha- today, happy time, happy time. Yeah. Um. So I had my twentieth high school reunion this past Sunday. Wow, Mazel Tov. Yeah, Rambam you must have graduated when you were five, I guess. Class of two thousand. Doogie Hauser Wits. Doogie Hauser. Wits. That was a Jewish joke because I. Doogie Hauserwitz. Yeah. Uh, um, what? Huh? Dovi. Dovi. Oh, Dovi. Dovi. Dovi Okay. Anyway. Doing, no, I, I graduated. Totally lost. I graduated on what's at age 18. Right <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, one of the highlights for me was the fact that two of my fellow alumni came up to me and said, uh, We love the podcast. Hey, nice. So How do you like that? I like it very, very much. So shout out to, to Josh Har and Avi Golumpik. You guys. Uh, made my night. That was awesome. Awesome. Now, to uh, get into this week's Parsha, we are dealing with Parsha Truma this week. And uh, it is another kind of departure from, we had the, the Ten Commandments in, in Yitro and some more narrative. Then we had the laws in Parsha Mishpatim. And this week we get into a uh, blueprint, a construction manual, a uh, a list of supplies. Effectively. Yeah, which is uh, which is an exciting thing to to think about. Exciting thing to think about. It's taking the next step for I guess construction was always exciting to think about. We're in the midst of a construction project, expansion expansion project, and Arshul. But uh, far more importantly, far more importantly was the construction of the Mishkan. The Ramban says at the very beginning of Sefer Shmos, in his introduction to the entire Sefer, he refers to or he notes that that this this entire book. At least uh, by by the uh, by the rabbis was always referred to or is often referred to as Sefer Geula, the Book of Redemption, and notes that that is really the climax of this book because more than just the redemption from 
from Egypt and the redemption from slavery, full redemption comes about when God actually takes up residence, as it were, in our midst. And that happens with the completion of the construction of the Mishkan, which begins really in this week's parsha. I'm glad that you mentioned the construction project uh, a few blocks away at the Young Israel of Cherry Hill, because I reading the parsha really brought, brought that to mind. It brought back specifically the uh, pledge drive that the shul ran earlier, uh, like in the summer, back in June, mm-hmm. uh, where you know the shul set this ambitious goal to try to raise uh, $100,000 in the day, and we were all very, uh, very curious to see if, how it would go. It wasn't a, an all or nothing match kind of thing where if we didn't raise it by the end of the day, you know, it wouldn't get it wouldn't get raised or it wouldn't get matched. It was all kind of you know whatever we got we got. So it was going to be a a net uh, a net gain. A net gain either way. But but still, it was this kind of what felt like an audacious goal. And and as you know, the day went on. I, I there was definitely a point in the afternoon when I was like. Oh, this is going to look so bad when we don't get it. We're going to maybe make it to eighty thousand or whatever it is. But as the as the evening wore on, you know, I don't remember what time it was nine fifteen or something like that. We hit it, and it was uh, it was amazing. Uh, it and was, if you recall, also that that night, just about at that exact time, there were literally fireworks going off because it was. I, I don't think it was actually July fourth. It was like July second or third, and there was a whole fireworks display that was going off someplace, someplace in the area, and it was like right as we closed out that campaign, fireworks were literally going off in the sky. Well, I was at the fish concert actually, and it was uh, it got it was pretty rocking. There was some amazing F I S H or uh, no P H I. That that's that's further down the street at the Camden Aquarium. Right, which was at right, the... right. Of course, of course, <laughs> that's silly of me. <laughs> this this was at the BB and T Pavilion. Uh, which is also on the Camden waterfront. That was the P H I S H, uh, ah, the band Fish, ah. and I was uh, listening to the uh, listening to the music and uh, pretty incessantly refreshing my phone <laughs> until we got it, and it was uh, sort of a, a joyous moment. I, I don't recall if there were any particularly like amazing uh, guitar chords struck them, but it, it felt that way for sure. Um, but but the reason that it came to mind is because uh, the idea that you build it together. Uh, the idea that it was, and I know this because I, you know, I was involved in various capacities with the building campaign. That like there were discussions about, you know, going and trying to find wealthy people to, to you know, make quiet contributions, and and there was a little bit of that. But by and large, the strategy that the shul came upon was the idea of we're going to just go to our community, we're going to go to our people, and it's so. It's it so echoes the, the parsha where you know it, it's it's an appeal to all the people and what's going to make the home for Hashem is the fact that everybody has the opportunity to be in on it everybody is in on it together and I think that that is really integral to the to it being successful to it being uh, a true house for Hashem. I could not agree more, and I think that perhaps there's even an echo of that in the word itself. Truma? Truma, because truma is related to the term laharim, right, to raise up. We think Mm. even in English about the concept of fundraising. And on a most superficial level, that's probably, or that's the most obvious interpretation of the word. It's fundraising, meaning you're effectively bringing the 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 asset and bringing the money up out of one the jurisdiction of one person and then depositing it in the coffers of the institution that's collecting it you're you're prying it or lifting it up out of the out of the pocket of the individual and then depositing it into the into the uh, institution's account on the one hand but on the other hand this is something that the mafarshim speak about is this sense of of becoming raised up yourself 
through that act of contribution and through that act of giving, that you become a different person, you become a more elevated person, you become a more ennobled person, because by definition, the act of giving is an act of selflessness, and the act of preserving or maintaining or, or taking is an act of of selfishness. Now, there are many times when selfishness is called for. Self-preservation is very, very important, and uh, or, or sometimes it's even it's even in the interest of taking care of one's of one's family. So, so you know, Judaism doesn't preach uh, you know communism where or socialism where where your dollars are not are really not not your own, and you get no credit for giving them, and they belong to the state and they belong to the collective. There is plenty of room and plenty of importance placed upon upon keeping uh, keeping money that that uh, you need and that you're you're uh, entitled to. But nevertheless, the idea of of selflessness and the idea of giving uh, it it creates a more ennobled individual when he's willing to to part with that money. And I think that more than just the the idea of giving, along the lines of what you're talking about, that there's a certain sense of belonging and and, and elevation. To the degree that I'm achieving something and I find that I'm now capable of achieving something that I never could have on my own, that as much as I might keep something for myself and I can do with it whatever whatever I will, but the idea that you can you can all take part in this project and in this effort that is somehow or another the sum is greater than the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that by everybody contributing, you're able to create something that no one individual ever could, and everybody comes together, and you're you're part of something and elevated to a status that couldn't have been achieved through your own personal singular efforts. Absolutely, I want to contrast it though with two other possibilities that we could draw from the parsha we've been reading in in Sefer Shemot, right? There is identity that can be drawn from uh, a shared uh, oppression, right? Those these people are all slaves. They're all slaves, right? But when slavery is over, what do they actually have in common? Right. You know, they're, they're it's very hard to forge an identity. I would think based purely on some shared uh, history of suffering. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's possible. Maybe it's not. I'm sure you you know we could debate different examples we could think of, but I. I think that it's definitely hard to form an affirmative identity of like, this is what we stand for, as opposed to this is where we come from and we share some kind of affinity that way. So, you know, how do you create this identity amongst these former slaves? So number one, you know, there's that. It could have been like, oh, we were the people who were slaves, but what do you stand for? You know, so you're all together, but there's not a lot of substance there in the present and, and guiding your future. Shared experience, but not shared ambition. Or shared goal. Yeah, and then on maybe I don't know. I don't know if this is the inverse necessarily, uh, but then you have the situation of just the the Ten Commandments of just getting receiving the Torah, right? Where we all got the Torah and we have Parshat Mishpatim. There's some very specific laws we have to follow. So good, I'm going to follow the laws and you're going to follow the laws and and he'll follow the laws and she'll follow the laws. But there's nothing. That but I don't I don't like you very much though you know there's nothing that binds me to you we just happen to all live under the same law and I think that that's something that we struggle with maybe in this country a little bit the the question you know I actually I had this um I had this discussion with somebody on Facebook I got into you know uh, shockingly I got into some kind of argument with someone on Facebook um, but it, it, without getting into the nitty gritty which I don't even remember it, it was interesting that they were saying. Uh, about American identity, that really Americans don't have any identity or shouldn't have any identity, that that we all come from different places, it's a nation of immigrants, and we just 
are all together under the laws of the Constitution. And that's what it, that's what it is. In American, it means you have the, the laws. And I said, well, I don't know if that's enough. Like, I think that we don't just have a Constitution. We also have a Bill of Rights that enshrines certain values as being American. And I'm not saying I'm necessarily 100% right, but I guess the, the point is, is that there's something beyond just following the laws, the halacha in, in Sefer Mishpatim, right? If we all had, I mean, this is something we, we've been seeing in the Dafyomi so, so much that there's coming together at shul, right? That like going and being part of the thing is really, really important over and above just doing it. You have to be there. You have to be somewhere so that the Mishkan, as we will see, forms the center of the Jewish of the Jewish uh, camp, the Jewish encampment in the desert, and it also becomes a shared project, something that they do together to forge an identity, to build a, a house for Hashem. And I I think that it's like again, I think in contrast to these two different models of of okay, we we all share the slaves or we all share the laws. This is something that I think builds a greater, stronger, more transcendent sense of unity. I think you have that express itself in the modern era as well, in the generation following the Holocaust. That coming out of the Holocaust, you had so many who either experienced were survivors themselves or had experienced the Holocaust in, in some in some other capacity, in a traumatic capacity, just being a Jew who's living through that and seeing and seeing and knowing the six million parish, and so many had had relatives and were personally affected in that capacity, even if they weren't survivors themselves. And you go almost directly, directly from the the horrors and the tragedies of the Holocaust to effectively building the modern state of Israel. And it became this mass building project that to no small degree, and you still see echoes and vestiges of this even today, and to no small degree, it's intentionally enshrined in the fabric of what the state of Israel is, that it was this intense, passionate motivation to build something from the wreckage. And I think that is, that's so often what what happens, what what God specifically calls for, and what God is almost directing here to make sure that that the Jewish people follow the the most likely and appropriate almost psychological arc is something that happened almost naturally perhaps in the modern era that when you that when you reel from that sort of tragedy and that sort of catastrophe almost your natural inclination your natural inclination is either to just roll over and, and and give up and you know who can blame those who did but uh, so many, so many really dug down. You read these stories about people who, who basically, they, they, were, they escaped with the partisans, they fled somehow or another through underground channels, made their way to Haifa, and like the next thing you know, a couple of years go by and they're, and they're, uh, they're, they're uh, serving in, in the nascent Israeli army trying to fight on behalf of Israel's liberation. So, right, it's... it's- don't just survive and don't just do okay on your own, but build something with other people. Build build something communal, build some sort of, of communal institution and have, have a cause, have a cause that can that can unite everyone. And it's like this is being choreographed by Hashem to ensure also, you know, not not only and I don't just I don't mean to say that the the Mishkan is just some sort of great, you know, coping mes- mechanism to allow the the Jewish people to process their their uh, feelings of 
of loss or or feelings of of oppression after having been liberated. It's not, but at the same time, it's not as if God needs a house. Uh correct, correct, right, right. So like, but meaning the, the the people. What I what I mean to say is that in theory, this can if it's just a, a means of. And look, I think that to some degree, you may find this even with the 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 you know early uh, builders of of the state that there isn't always or there wasn't always a clear a clear path to channeling that motivation and channeling that energy necessarily to the right cause. You, you want to do something. You want to do something communal. You want to build something that seems to better secure the future of the Jewish people. What God ensures is that this is going to be done in a manner that's also imbued with spirituality and with holiness. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's true. But like what the manner of the holiness is, is like, you know, I, I mean, there's nothing predetermined about it. It's not like we know what holiness looks like, so Hashem says, make it look like that thing that you know that looks like holiness. It, it it's We're finding out what that is right now. Like the, the people themselves. Well, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's self-proving. Like, it it's it enforces itself. Anything that Hashem tells you to build is going to become, is sure, going to be right. viewed as holiness. But, it, but in the same, but if you would have said, same, don't use acacia wood, use oak, <laughs> you know, use walnut. Correct. But, I, it but, would by be the, also. but by the same token, it's not, it's not arbitrary, meaning God has his God has the the plan already predetermined as to what what properly driven and motivated holiness is going to look like. So that that with that in mind, I think we we should probably talk a little bit about like what is a mishkan? What does it look like? What what is it, what is being asked? I mean, we we really spent most of the show, which I, I think has been a good conversation, but we've spent talking about the idea of building something together. But what is this mishkan? If somebody asked you, what is a mishkan? Uh, you know, both in in concept and in form, how would you answer that? It's a vehicle. It's a vehicle. I think anything, any answer that you're going to give is going to need to be tongue in cheek because of what you just said. That to to give the answer that this is a house of God is effectively a contradiction in terms because God doesn't need a house because God is is infinite. Not only does God God not need a house, but it's impossible for God to be contained within anything physical. But somehow or another, this serves as a vehicle, as an antenna, as a lightning rod for God's presence to be channeled into the rest of the people. And I think that more than anything, it is like like all mitzvos and like Torah in general, it is it is a rendition of of what access to God looks like for a finite human being, meaning that God makes himself accessible and available, even in ways that are a complete contradiction in terms and almost a a complete paradox, because he's dealing with finite, limited human beings, people, and they need to be able to have a means of accessing him. So it's going to be something that sort of straddles the fence between both worlds. It's going to be very, very physical. It's going to be very finite. It's going to be made of, of matter. It's going to occupy space and yet it's going to kind of uh throw one of the throw one of its legs over the over the fence at the other side of the of the supernatural that there are there are elements which really don't occupy space when the uh the rabbis speak about the the space that the uh that the Aaron Kodesh occupies within the holy of holies that somehow or another it, it it doesn't really occupy actual physical space because there's there really isn't sufficient room for it and and things like that and that when the Jewish people all converge upon the Mishkan for the purpose of of bringing the carbon Pesach that somehow or another the the uh, temple courtyard expands because it can't really 
contain everybody. So on the one hand, it's made of, of the kind of physical materials that'll, that'll be tangible and that'll be, that will resonate with our physical material sense of things, of stuff, of matter. It's aesthetically appealing. Also true, right? It's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. And, and, and the, the, the design and the textures and the colors are so fully circumscribed by this week's Parsha and next week's Parsha. So that's all on the one hand. It will be beautiful and it will appeal to our physical senses. And yet it is an, an, an area that is beyond, right, where where certain laws need to be kept that aren't kept anywhere else, where there is greater sensitivity, heightened sensitivity and awareness of whatever it is that we call Tum'ah needs to be more, needs to be cautioned against to a greater degree on the Temple Mountain in the Mishkan than, than anywhere else. And it's this, it's this uh, place and this space that kind of seems to have one foot in two worlds. So if, if I can kind of draw something from what you said, I, I think it's interesting to contrast what you said about the fact that the, the Holy of Holies, so I mean, you know, so I guess I meant more like physically speaking, like that there's, you know, essentially it's a series of like tents, right? It's like a, a long, you know, basically a room, like it's what, like 50 by 100, and, you know, there's a, a curtain, and, uh, you know, and then all that's holy, and then, you know, there's a center, there's a, a holy of holies, and in the holy of holies is what the Ten Commandments are in a box in the holy of holies, and you say that, you know, our tradition is that the box itself, the Aron, or the Ark, doesn't, the dimensions that are given for the Ark don't actually add up with the space that is given for the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, so that it's it kind of exists beyond the boundaries of space. And I think that that contrasts so, I don't know, it's just this interesting effect of transcendental, you know, metaphysical going beyond space with the fact that there are very clear etched letters carved into stone that are also at the center. So it's very not based in the real world. And on the other hand, it is totally, you know, there's something that's inscribed that is solid carved on stone that's also in the middle. You know, the Luchos themselves, right? The the rabbis talk about how the, the writing could be perceived properly, meaning it could be read legibly from either side. That if you flip the tablets over, you, you can read it you could read it just as easily. You wouldn't see the the etching all the way through, but you would you would be able to read it from either side, even though it was only engraved on one on one side. Um, and uh, you know all all kinds of interesting tricks that that the samach right, which is effectively just a circle, so that the interior, if since it was etched all the way through, the interior of the samach was effectively just floating in midair. Like when you get tracing paper, when like it's not tracing, but like you get the the letters. To trace when you're a kid in the A, the little triangle in the middle of the A, you got to draw that right. little that little line down that connects it in order to so connect it. The Ten Commandments did not have that little did not have that that little line did not have that. <laughs> Do people right. know what I'm talking? You know what I'm talking? I about, know what right? you're talking about. Just like, free free floating. Kids don't have that today. Those those because they just do it on computer. They have computers right? now, right? They don't have like a stencil of the letters to do the covers of their book reports. No, we have computers now. I right. should oh I should I should get you one of those. A computer? Yeah, it would make recording this so much easier. What is that hamster that you have running in a wheel back there Listen, trying it's to been, generate it's been working electricity? So, it's been working so far. But no, I, I think that's a point well taken, that, that the that the scent, like, I, I guess the, the point I was trying to make is that, and I think it's only 
reinforced by what you're saying that in Judaism, the transcendental exists integrally linked with the words of the law, with the commandments, with the legal principles, with morality, um, so that we are both those things, right? I mean, I think that Judaism has been accused by you know, by Christians over the centuries is, you know, it's overly legalistic. The idea of the Pharisees, that you're, you're being a Pharisee is like a, it's an insulting thing within Christianity because you're too focused on the, the nitty gritty of the law, but letter versus spirit. Right. But what I think is beautiful in the Mishkan, you know, as you point out, is that letter and spirit, physical and metaphysical are literally intertwined They're Yeah. I, I think that's a, something that we need to, uh, to reflect more on as we go through these uh, these Torah portions. Amen. The Portion Podcast is recorded in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, produced by Aaron Roller. Our theme music is The Magid's Niggin by Simply Tzfat. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends about it any way you can. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us and leave a review. And you can follow the show on Facebook. We are sponsored by the Pravda Family Foundation. Have a good Shabbos, and remember, there is always more to learn. לילה טוב ולהתראות.